0: Listening to the One Two Three Show with me, Noreen May, on this Monday afternoon, and I'm super super excited uh, to be doing our next topic uh, because it's something that we haven't revisited uh, on the One Two Three Show, and we're talking uh, whether or not Hong Kong is a racist city, and how can we uh, actually create a better future for ethnic minorities here. And to chat about this, I'm really happy to be uh, joined once again by Phyllis Chung, the executive director of Hong Kong Unison, which is an NGO that advocates for the rights of ethnic minorities. Minorities, And we're also chatting with Pooja Kapai, an associate professor from the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. And Pooja also specializes in human rights, multiculturalism, citizenship theory, and particularly the rights of minorities, including children and women. Welcome to the program, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us this afternoon.
1: Hi, Noreen and
0: Phyllis. Hi, great Noreen. To- It's great to have Hi, you Pooja. both. Yeah. So maybe um, I'll just sort of ask, you know, Hong Kong, when we think of Hong Kong, we think of it being as quite an international city, a global financial hub and, and all of that. But really, how accepting is it when it comes to racial differences, Apuja. Uh, Pooja?
1: So, you know, Noreen, you know, it's it's sort of in our branding that we're Asia's world city and with this global international financial center, as you said. And of course, if you look at the demographics of Hong Kong, we're about 8% ethnic minority and then the rest is, uh, you know, Chinese. Um, and within this minority group as well, we've got a lot of different um, variations uh, where about 6.4%. Uh, 6.6% of the ethnic minorities are um, domestic workers, and then the remaining 34 are ethnic minorities per se. Um, and, you know, the reality is that ethnic minorities in Hong Kong are raised we are raced and erased at convenience. So I think when it serves our purpose, we want to sell the diversity brand. Then you tend to see, you know, we're more visible in certain spheres. But when it's inconvenient or when we're sort of seen as the source of a problem, we're immediately problematized as South Asians who are, you know, who have a strong nexus with criminal activity or um, fake refugee status and things like that. So you know, um, there's a pervasive sort of undercurrent of race underlying a lot of our interactions and these begin very early uh, in life for many of us including for those of us who've been brought up here or who are born here or who've been here for generations uh, and you know unfortunately the racism cuts through from uh, you know being able to access mainstream schooling, to our ability to access Chinese language education to the requisite levels. And that of course impacts our employment prospects, what fields we get into, um, our uh, income levels and whether we end up in situations of poverty, uh, et cetera. So I think that there's really, uh, this is such an important conversation because globally, as you know, everybody has their lens sort of focused on how does race sort of manifest in our society. And I think Hong Kong has a different story and a different trajectory that needs to be spoken of. The problem, however, is that it's such a sensitive and touchy topic um, because people feel that it's almost uh, you know, insulting to be billed uh, a racist. Right. And so, I mean, I think we have to unpack some of the language that we use. How do you en- engage in a productive conversation? But that has to start with having a level of awareness that we have a problem. And, you know, all societies have a problem with race. That's what we're seeing globally. And so it doesn't help to just shove these issues under the carpet.
0: Absolutely. Um, let's also um, yeah. bring Phyllis into this conversation. I mean, um, Pooja listed out some of the the, the common issues such as um, poverty and education. What other issues do ethnic minorities uh, face? Here? here in Hong Kong, Phyllis?
2: I think those are um, the results of institutional um, racism. Um, Although it's, it's not really very explicit racism Against you know ethnic minorities and government policies, but you know later on I c- I can just you know explain to you some of the institutional racism. But what Pooja started saying is the everyday racism that um, darkest skin color people f- um, face, and um, she also did a research with a pyramid saying you know which are the ones more acceptable and non acceptable, and it happens to be the most darkest color like black skinned people are the least accepted and you know um uh, well treated so uh, color just makes makes you know um makes a difference in in hong kong we cannot we cannot sh- as put just shuffle it and ignore it and in fact because unison um deals with a lot of parents a lot of students and we also have a group of university um, um university scholarship students and they often tell us that because of this everyday racism, they have been conditioned to it. Whether they go to a school with most Chinese, people look down at them, or people tease them, bully them, you know, making fun of them. And they've just taken it as this is the norm, which is very sad, you know, but this is the kind of everyday racism they've been. And if you ask me how come there's racism in Hong Kong and most, you know, most of the Chinese community, don't really recognize that and won't and they would say oh this doesn't happen in Hong Kong you know I think it's because institutionally um, some of the government policies have been um, not fair and they haven't really taken uh, ethnic minorities in mind when they plan for a policy and also during implementation and so if the, if the government is is leading right and, and unconsciously then obviously the community does the same.
0: Absolutely.
1: But this is where I think, you know, these issues are, sorry to cut you, Noreen, (laughs) this is where I think the issues are so sort of um, complex and really require us to to dive in and think about what's really going on here, right? So the first thing is, you know, Phyllis, you mentioned the racial hierarchy pyramid, Uh, and actually what it shows us is that, you know, Black is not at the bottom, contrary to what we think, because the world is sort of so um, focused on the narrative in the U.S. and how racism plays out in the U.S. that we assume that naturally Black would be at the bottom, but in the pyramid in Hong Kong, Black is in the middle and Brown is at the bottom. And so that requires that we rethink. Sorry, no, 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 that's fine. It's, it's a very common assumption, right? And I think it's completely misplaced because we're, uh, you know, we we tend to think that racism everywhere manifests in the same way. But what we're seeing in Hong Kong is that we don't have the same kind of entrenched colorism-based racism, you know, in Hong Kong. And the second thing is, you know, this is also an anomaly. People tend to think that race equals color, but actually the two are not the same. There are some interlinkages there which do result in Poorer treatment, uh, you know, the darker your skin color. And India is a classic example of how those divisions play out in terms of, you know, white uh, and black. Um, but I think in Hong Kong, something else is at play which shows that it's not just skin color and it's not necessarily skin color, but race is manifested in various forms where your socioeconomic status or other aspects of how you present yourself, your language, are taken to be proxies of your race and then you're marginalized in that way. That's the first thing that I think is really important. Uh, And the second thing I think to bear in mind is, when we say that the government has not had ethnic minorities in mind when they're crafting policies, again, this is a global problem. And and this is where I think we can start to think about how do you identify solutions to racism? People often say, well, I'm not the one uh, discriminating against somebody. This is our institution's policy, right? But the point is not—it's not good enough to just step out and say, "Well, I'm not being racist." The important thing, uh, you know, at this point is to devise ways of being anti-racist, as Ibrahim Candy, you know, has said in his work. It's very important to notice that we're all participating in the system and the structure. We benefit from it. And so, you know, if the structure has embedded racism, as Phyllis said, which it does, the government and all of us have to be much more intentional about combating racism because it's so pervasive.
2: We've
0: also um, we're also inviting our listeners to join in this conversation as well. Uh, Noreen Mayer on RTHK Radio 3 is the page to do so. Uh, several very interesting comments. Uh, Conrad writes in and says, uh, yes, we are. I think he's saying Hong Kong is a racist city. And he says, however, since it's so widely accepted, we don't even think. Uh, of it as being racist. Uh, for example, adults can laugh at Indian people for smelling differently, and it's okay. We still have a street call Molo guy um, and he says a, a word which I can't say on the radio. So it's precisely Conrad's point, you know, it, that that's a danger of racism. It becomes acceptable as Phyllis and Pooja, you pointed out, it's the everyday racism um, and therefore nobody challenges it. Everybody sort of turns a, a blind eye. So how do we start to really start to notice it? Is it from our education? Is it you know our families don't really talk about it how how can we um start this conversation puja
1: well you know from the work that i've shared on the show before uh the unconscious bias study that i did very much highlights how early on we acquire these biases and i think conrad's absolutely right you know we've come to a point where we've essentially normalized all of this behavior and that means that you know we we don't um, necessarily think twice about continuing our ways but if we want to challenge this seriously it has to start very early on in early childhood education, uh, and to you know make our curricula inclusive, be more intentional and deliberate about what we expose our children to. And most importantly, I think we have to all figure out a way to participate um, in this process by calling out racism when we see it. So when somebody you know uh, stands up and walks away from you uh, because you're sitting on the MTR, or you see that happening to an ethnic minority in front of you as it often happens to us, um, you know, you should say something, or you should maybe be an example and go and sit down next to them, right? Or we should learn to talk to our children about, um, you know, uh, busting some of the stereotypes and myths that are out there. We need better multimedia that our children are exposed to so that they can learn that, you know, cultures and celebrating them are not just about engaging in this sort of, you know, Uh, appreciation of the exoticism of cultures, but it goes much deeper than that to really show solidarity and understand our
2: shared humanity.
0: Yeah, are there certain races which... Sorry, go on for this.
2: Sorry, I agree with Puja to a very great extent. And the fact is, Um, it's so difficult to enter you know um, for ethnic minorities especially the South Asians and the Southeast Asians to enter mainstream kindergarten and therefore you know um, without that Chinese ability it's very difficult to enter a mainstream um, school a mainstream primary school and last year statistics statistics show that about 50 percent of the ethnic minority students are actually concentrated in just 29 primary and secondary schools so without that um, without that interaction. Chinese people and you know, the the, the major community would just see um, South Asians and also ethnic minorities as as aliens, right? Because they've never lived with them. They've never studied with them. And racism is a learned behavior. Um, I mean, like little kids, if you give them really good civil civil education, I mean, they, they don't they don't they don't despise each other. They don't discriminate. Absolutely. I think you made such an important point, Phyllis. You know, it's not what we
1: necessarily teach them overtly, but it's also so much more of what they're just observing around them. So yeah. I, you're absolutely right. It's about getting them to engage with um, each other so that they can learn about friendships and how they're cultivated and how do you build trust. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, has the government actually made any real effort uh, to lift ethnic minority students out of their struggles? I mean, um, actually, you know, given ethnic minority students a real chance um, uh, to to, to break out of this uh, education cycle? Phyllis?
2: Yeah, um, so I have to say the Education Bureau has done a lot um, in terms of providing funding to kindergartens and to primary schools and secondary schools uh, with um, ethnic minority students or um, what they call non-Chinese speaking students. So the definition of non-Chinese speaking is Chinese is not the home language they speak. Um, but the thing is um, the monitoring. And um, how each school actually use uses the money differently, and everyone runs on a school-based curriculum. And so there is no there is no expectation for um, ethnic minorities to learn, uh, for example, in the Chinese subject where they should be at. So um, in a way, um, it's, it's not really helping ethnic minorities, although there have been extra funding given to them. So there may be you know, after-school tutorial classes to only help on Chinese, but otherwise um, I would say monitoring is very important. They have this policy, they're giving up the funding, now comes the monitoring so that the, the policy is being implemented correctly yeah. and effectively.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like there are a lot of uh, real issues that uh, ch- non, non-Chinese-speaking children face here in Hong Kong. A select few, if they can afford it, they can go to international schools. But when you've got, you know, parents who work right. uh, in, 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 in low-paying jobs, how how on earth can they afford it? Uh, I mean, Pooja, exactly. um, maybe you can wait. You went to a, a, a local school to begin with. I mean, I'm sure you've got experiences to, to share. I mean, you, you're one of the few who really made it, but there's some um, who just didn't.
1: Yeah, well, the reality is that ethnic minority children not only start school at a later point than our Chinese counterparts, but we also tend to drop out of school earlier. And there are many factors which contribute to this, including, um, you know, uh, children needing to sort of graduate early or leave school in order to work to provide for the family, to contribute to the income. But also, as you said, there's no parental support at home that can help the child sort of see through the education trajectory. Um, I count myself as, you know, I mean, a lot of people write it off to luck, but I would have to say it's deliberate, uh, hard Hard work. work, Yes, a great perseverance that goes into being one of the few that actually make it in the domains that we, you know, we end up in. And if you look around, there's really a handful of ethnic minorities finally starting to become more visible as role models or leaders of their particular industries or professions. Uh, And, you know, if Hong Kong were truly inclusive, and if sort of the government's efforts in terms of inclusive education were hitting the mark, this wouldn't be, you know, this, uh, it wouldn't be this super dream for so many ethnic minority children who ask me, who allowed you to be a professor or who allowed you to study law? These are the kind of questions that ethnic minority children ask me, especially girls. They're looking for permission. But education should not be about permissibility. Education should be something that everybody is guaranteed, and we are guaranteed it under our international human rights, under Hong Kong's law, and in theory, there's no, uh, you know, there's no law that precludes us from uh, having that access. But as uh, Phyllis said, it's these systemic structures and barriers that keep getting in the way. And you know, being sort of now third generation and having my son who's undergone this entire process of trying to access. The school education system he's in a mainstream school and we're so fortunate but i have to say it hasn't come with an over-the-top effort of tremendous hard work and so to your point Nareen, if parents don't have the time the resources and know-how then you're destined to end up in one of those 29 schools that the majority of ethnic minority children end up going to if they're going to the public sector
2: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Phyllis? And I, I, I want to add to, um, you know, Pooja saying, um, who allows you to be in law. And in fact, Chinese is not the most important thing, you know, to learn. I mean, Chinese is important to learn in school, but I find that now the Education Bureau is putting all the bucks into Chinese learning, what 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 is missing is an inclusion policy. There has to be an inclusion policy, and teachers have to know about you know um, have to be culturally sensitive, and curriculum has to be culturally responsive. Um, Students would tell us, you know, that when they, when they t- uh, talk to teachers about, you know, some of their career planning, you know, the path to take, should I take a science stream? What, let's, what, what subjects do I take in Form 4? They would say, oh, just choose on oh, you know, all these applied learning because you're not going to go into university anyway. And it's like well, they for have... industry courses, right? yeah yeah and they're already putting down the students based on the 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 typical you know very negative stereotypes of ethnic minorities in hong kong so um teacher training especially cultural sensitivity training it's it's very important so that teachers respect them as individuals no matter what their skin color is and also um and, and also encourage them and give them a lot of support during education. Yeah. But uh, I think, sorry, you know, Phyllis, on, you? this is also where children
1: have a hard, uh, you know, they have a very hard time in schools. I mean, we know that in Hong Kong and every other context as well, schools have a bullying problem, which is on the rise. Right. You know, and, and many children in Hong Kong have shared recently their experiences relating to sexism and racism in the school mm-hmm. context, notably in the ESF. Uh, you know, um, yes. petitions to find out, which highlighted these problems, which have been longstanding. And as a student who also once was, you know, at an ESF school in Hong Kong, it's sad to see that, you know, 30 plus years on, these problems are still out there. My own son, when he, you know, he, um, his classmates told him they don't want to hold his hand because his skin color is darker than theirs. And they were worried that somehow the color rubs off on you. And you know, this is it when he was four. Oh, so I spoke to his class teacher about it. And his class teacher said to me, you know, she was Uh, She was great. She was a wonderful teacher, but I have to say their ability to handle uh, incidents which um, are actually, you know, subtle forms of uh, racism, or even one could say overt, except that you know that a child isn't intentionally being racist. Um, you know, the, the teacher's competencies in this regard aren't uh, sort of well-developed. And and the teacher's advice for me was, oh, you should just tell your son, you know, to let it just roll off his back. I mean, kids make fun of my hair all the time. Uh-uh. I just, I like my hair. And my response to her was, but miss, you can change your hairstyle if you want to. What can my son do about his skin color, right? There exactly. surely have better ways to respond. Uh, and I have yet to see, you know, I mean, it may be interesting to see how the ESF sort of um, grapples with the current um, allegations that are made against Mm school
0: yeah Mm -hmm. so it comes down to training as well I mean on on all fronts but where does that training come from and who's responsible for that training I mean in the case of ESF should they have internal um, um, uh, trainings or should there be standardized procedures for all teachers in Hong Kong to undergo that sort of training so that um, when you do have uh, you know children of different backgrounds in your school you can just handle these issues but I do want to also very very quickly uh, turn to one of the comments on on the Facebook page and it's the other side of the argument. Um, Nicole uh, writes in and says, I don't think Hong Kong is racist towards foreigners as I have never felt badly treated, disrespectful or unwelcomed here. But I know it's hard to build solid working relationships between foreigners and locals. The locals assume that foreigners will leave Hong Kong at some point and go back and therefore no point in investing in long-term solid working relationships and the foreigners will eventually go home. Uh, it's a dog-eat-dog situation. I think it's more cult I think it's more of a cultural issue rather than racial Um, and uh, that thought comes from Nicole another comment Anthony then writes back to says "Um, lol Nicole as a as a person of as a non-person of color I think you'll be hard-pressed to experience racism what about that point it comes down to your skin color if you're dark uh, your chances of uh, uh, experiencing racism is much higher than if you were white
1: Well, I mean, in my work, Noreen, you know, I I talk about how race is used as a language and how colorism often is used to sort of uh, be this cover for, oh, we can explain what's going on. And it's just cultural. It's not really race. Uh, And, you know, I I think just picking up on Nicole's point, she said, if you're a foreigner, then there's no long term investment because people think that you're going to leave. Well, do I fit it, right? People perceive me as a foreigner, but I have not known any other home other than Hong Kong, so I think I'm a local. But to Phyllis's point, right, the the government uh, labels us as non-Chinese speaking, so we're only defined in relation to what we are not. We are not Chinese, but we're nothing else. But each of us is somebody and something, right? But that is not visible because the the language that is used basically breaks down all of those differences and turns us into this, you know, homogenous group, which we're not. Uh, and as you know, I'm not sure what um, Nicole's background or ethnicity is, but she says she's a foreigner. Um, so I can certainly say that there's a great deal of privilege which co- which comes with being a foreigner who is of a lighter skin color. Because in Hong Kong, you're not called an ethnic minority; you're labeled an expat, and an expat carries with it certain class connotations and certain co- connotations about your social standing, which ethnic minorities don't benefit from. Mm. So you know, maybe from that side of the looking glass, it does seem as though foreigners enjoy a great deal of receptivity in Hong Kong. Uh, and, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say everybody experiences race in the same way in the city, most certainly not. But I can certainly attest to the fact that on this side of the looking glass, it's not misunderstanding. And there's data that now backs this up, that there is, you know, not only unconscious bias against race, which is much more greatly entrenched, but there's also overt biases, which have, uh, you know, been, you um, gradually uh, uh, pervading into uh, the life trajectory of our youth who can't make it because they're undereducated, underemployed and living in conditions of poverty. They're more likely to end up in those conditions. So there has to be a systemic fix. And as you know, as Phyllis and Noreen, both of you pointed out, it comes down to education, but not just training. Training can help uh, bring people to a certain point but it's also about, um, you know, starting really early on, so that you obviate the need for training, because you know in your heart that race and color and all of these things don't define someone's intelligence, their competencies, their belonging, uh, and their contribution to society. So I think we would do better um, to start sort of with our own sort of children uh, and give them this foresight uh, how to build sort of an equal society. Um, but teacher training, definitely, I think it's absolutely mandatory in teaching colleges for teachers to have um, a, not just one module, which is often what it is. It's one class of three hours. They need much more intensive, uh, you know, uh, education. I wouldn't call it training, yeah. education and how to Cultural teach.
2: competence. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah
0: cultural competence, I Mm -hmm. like that. I'm afraid we're out of time, and there's still so much that we want to talk about. I know Pooja, you've you've often uh, you've also just presented at a global conference about the impact of COVID-19 on ethnic minorities. There's so much we didn't get to talk about, and and also about uh, education and and other things uh, with you, Phyllis. But let's return to this topic another time. I promise we will do it again, and I'm sure our listeners, we have so many comments on our Facebook page as well. Uh, This is definitely a topic on people's mind. Uh, Meanwhile, Thank you so much uh, for your time this afternoon. And we've been speaking uh, to Phyllis Cheung, the Executive Director of Unison uh, Hong Kong, uh, which is an NGO that advocates for the rights of ethnic minorities. And also Pooja Kapai, an Associate Professor from the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. Many thanks uh, to both of you for your time. And I look forward to inviting you both back on next time. Thank you very much. And, thank you,